Today, why we are sometimes inclined to act in ways inconsistent with the things we really do believe. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So last week, uh, we aired an episode which was really just an interview that I conducted with Rachel Den Hollander and Tiffany Thigpen about uh, some things relevant to the sexual abuse crisis going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, I, you know, I felt like it was important to put that interview first. Originally, the plan had been uh, to have this discussion, the one we're going to do today, and then use that interview as part of an example of why entities and organizations, and ultimately those are led by people who make decisions, why people make decisions that are so contrary to the very things we say we value most. And I'm not, I, 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 I do want to pick on that issue for just one moment because I will mention it at the end of today's discussion again. But I want to point it out specifically here I know there are some people we believe just don't share our values, and I do think that's true. There are some people who are in leadership, and they've been there for a long time, and either because of the generation they're from or because of the news feed that they pay attention to or whatever, really don't share the same concerns that we do about the survivors of sexual abuse and some of the things that have been going on in denominations of all kinds, uh, both in the United States and elsewhere in the world. I think there are some people who don't share our values about that. That's fine. And I mean, it's not fine, but those people are going to do things that are obviously contrary to our values because they don't share our values. But I also know that some of the leaders who've been involved in making some of the decisions that we were talking about and that uh, that we were talking about in that interview uh, and that see, that are so contradictory to our own values, they do share those values with us. I know they do. I know they care about these things. And it's like, how on earth do you come to the wrong decision? Well, you know, I've, I, I've been in ministry and studying scripture and trying to follow Christ my entire life, which is a long time now. And I have enough experience in leadership as well, both as a pastor first and then now as uh, the president of a college at Criswell College. I have enough experience in those different venues to have a sense of why people feel pressured to do something other than what they really believe would be right if they could just think narrowly about the only thing, you know, this one core value. But when it's a core value, you just can't compromise it. And we've done whole discussions on this in the past, the difference between prima facie and actual duties or obligations. So the question becomes why, 
you know, we do these things contradicting our values. So uh, what I want to do is just talk about that. And, and in the past, we've laid enough groundwork that we can manage this conversation in a fairly straightforward way. Otherwise, it would take two or three or four episodes. It'd be one of those. I would just run on and on and on about it. But I don't have to do that because we've laid this groundwork. So we've talked about utilitarianism in the past. We've talked about when a person decides that they're going to make their judgments on the basis of the results that they get. That is, claiming that the ends, or not even claiming it, just sort of living like the ends justify the means. And that's a problem. And it's a problem for this reason, just to clarify again. Because it's a form of moral nihilism. I know those are not everyday words that we use, but moral nihilism is is not a difficult concept. Morality is this idea that there are some things that are right and wrong, right? That's that's easy enough. So it's wrong to commit murder. It's wrong to commit rape. It's wrong to uh, steal. It's wrong to bear false witness and so on. That's all fine. It when but when you say the moral requirement to do those things doesn't really exist. It's just the way we happen to live with each other. And we have arbitrary rules that we've decided on that make society better and so on. Then you would be saying morality is not a real thing. It's just sort of a set of agreements we have with each other. And you'd be a moral nihilist. Or if you said there's no right and wrong, you just do whatever you're going to do. And whatever whoever gets away with it writes the rules and it makes it sound like it's right. But in truth, it's just what they got away with. You'd be a moral nihilist, right? So it's a pretty harsh position to hold in some ways. But in reality, it's a very common position to hold because if we actually live as if the ends justify the means, that it's okay to tell this lie because the result we get makes it worth it, you know, that kind of thinking. It's okay to make this very difficult decision about practicing genocide in Europe in the mid-1930s and, and, and into the 40s because we need a brighter future, you know, something like that. When the ends justify the means, and, and the second one was an obviously uh, morally unacceptable conclusion, the first example that I gave was one that we compromise on all the time. Well, it's just a little lie. It's not going to make that big a difference. My point is to get us all swept into the same category where we're saying the ends justify the means. That claim that it's okay to do something because the result is worth it ultimately is a form of moral nihilism. It's a form of saying morality is not a real thing. It's just a tool we use to govern our behavior. But ultimately, we really we just want to get to the right results. And the reason it's a form of moral nihilism is because in that case, the ultimate arbiter of whether to do something or not is whether we like the outcome. It's not whether the thing to be done or not is somehow inherently right or wrong. So moral realism, and again, I know we don't all use those terms normally. So moral realism is, you know, the belief that morality is a real thing. It actually exists. There are things that are right and they're wrong and they're not changed in their rightness or wrongness by whether we desire them or not. They're not emotional. They're not equivalent. They can't be reduced to something else. They can't be reduced to a utility or a feeling. They are something in and of themselves about morality itself. So moral realism, that belief, would dictate that ends do not justify means. 
Because if ends justify means, morality simply becomes this handmaiden of whatever it is we desire. And desire becomes the ultimate arbiter of what's right and wrong. And right and wrong is no longer, therefore, inherently right or wrong. Therefore, you wouldn't be a moral realist. Okay, you get the idea. So by its nature then, and and because of what it appeals to, the, the end, the result that we want, by its nature, utilitarianism, that way of thinking about doing things, about choosing what's right and wrong, has led us, and in particular by us, I mean Americans, toward pragmatism. We've become a pragmatic culture. And, and I mean that with a capital P. Uh, we adopt the philosophy of pragmatism. But I don't mean it like we adopt it philosophically. Plenty of people do that, the ones who think philosophically, but people who don't think philosophically still follow the practice of just doing whatever works. Our pragmatism sometimes helps us develop the means for accomplishing a result, and sometimes it is entirely about the opposite of that, sort of the inverse of that, which is entirely avoiding a particular result. And so sometimes people don't recognize, and we just don't think through, the fact that when we're faced with a dilemma, oh, I, know, I've, I've, I, I should do this, this is the thing I believe in, these are the values that I hold, but I can't because the result would be so bad. And, and so in order to avoid this catastrophic result, I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to act against the thing that I actually do value. We make decisions regardless of whether we're choosing to achieve an end or avoid an end, it's still the end that's determining what we think is right or wrong. And in pragmatism, it's saying it makes whatever thing I'm doing actually right. This is the noble thing to do. This is the virtuous thing to do. This is the obligation that I should fulfill, whichever kind of ethical system you hold. So in either case, whether it's positive or negative, by becoming pragmatic in our decision-making, we inevitably become those who are making results-based decisions. I mean, this is by definition pragmatic. Instead of moral decisions. So we can put the word moral on it, but it's reducing, it's dumbing down, it's reducing the meaning of morality to simply, you know, whatever works to get the results that I want. And that's not good enough. And it's, and importantly, again, let me emphasize that there's a psychological element to this. It's not purely philosophical. In fact, it's not very philosophical at all. Most people are not thinking through that, not because they're ignorant. I'm not, I'm not even questioning them, not because they're naive in an insulting sense, but because most of us don't have time to sit down and do a bunch of philosophy. We're busy living life and making difference in other people's lives and so on. So the psychological component is that a person doesn't choose this philosophy. We just, we do it out of necessity in the moment. We're sort of pressed by the things that we're attracted to and interested in, the patterns of behavior we see in others, and even in our own lives when we get a good result, a, a reward, sort of a, a pleasure uh, benefit from it. And on the other side, when we receive some kind of negative reward, some kind of a pain response to it and so on. So our psychology sort of sets us up to want to make decisions in this way. Because of that, outside of the realm of ethics and morality and all the philosophy I've been talking about for a minute, and we're going to get back to the examples in just a few minutes, but outside of that, there is in Christianity an expression of how important it is that we not 
be governed by ends, but instead recognize that there are some things we choose to do because of the values they're associated with, regardless of the cost. And this is an easy example in Christianity. In Luke 14, a passage that I've covered before in this podcast, different episodes, and for, you know, throughout my whole ministry, you know, I've talked about these kinds of things, and I've had to learn myself in a variety of ways. We're taught that you have to take into account any cost for yourself when you first choose to adopt the value that's associated with following Christ. And this is the nature of following a man, God, who chose to live a life that ended in the cross and then, of course, leads to the resurrection. But the point for us is that the beginning of that journey is acknowledging the cross that Christ goes to. And so in Luke 14, the passage that I think most obviously uh, deals with this particular issue and sort of compresses it into a single paragraph uh, is starts in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompany Jesus, and this is important as a context. Everybody, oh, we're going to follow this man. He's giving us what we want. Yeah, that's what he's thinking. That's what they're thinking, I mean. And so he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not, and then this really, con- uh, you know, uh, it creates a lot of conflict uh, in discussing this passage, so this controversial passage. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I know that the standard uh, you, the, the standard explanation for that statement, which just is so creepy in a world of cults and things like that, right? So you have to hate your mother. I hate you, mother. I choose to follow this man instead. That just really is troubling, right? I mean, especially in a book that talks about honoring your father and mother. So, you know, what are we supposed to do with that? So we explain it away with a relative statement. Well, it's in comparison with how great your love for Jesus is, you hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you really love them. But, I mean, you love Jesus so much more that you can't, you know, it's just like you look at your parents and, oh, like, Jesus is so great. They're disgusting to me. I, 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 I've never, I've never heard that answer and thought, yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. You just don't use these words if you don't mean what they say. So how on earth can we be instructed in a book about honoring your father and mother to hate your father and mother in order to become a follower of Jesus? In a book that identifies the love of God and love of your neighbor as the most important things in our lives and then makes clear you can't even love God if you're not loving your neighbor. So I, I just, I'm looking at this and go, what on earth is supposed to be going on? And then you read the rest of the passage and you realize it's not that complicated. He explains exactly what it means. So does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also. So now I hate my life. I hate this life. I hate what I do. I hate what I'm, that's, is that what I'm supposed to have, a demeanor of self-loathing? If anybody could live with it, I could, by the way. But I don't think that's what he's saying. How do I know that? So he goes on to say, I'll read it to you. He cannot be my disciple. So if you're not doing those things, you can't be my disciples. What does that mean? So, he's, so he, he repeats it, but now instead of saying it about other people, he says it about the cross. 
whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, and then the same statement, cannot be my disciple. This is the whole point. What I can't be his disciple if I don't bear my own cross. So what, am I supposed to go find a cross now? Uh, let me go find a cross, and I'll pick it up. Because he's going to go to a real cross. They live in a culture where there are crosses, and people die on them. So he's talking about a cross. So do I go find a cross and, 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 and climb onto it and say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Somebody nail me to this cross so I can be a follower of Jesus. Well, I'll just carry it around with me until somebody does nail me, but at least I'll be bearing my own cross, right? That's, that's not what he's getting at. And how do I know that? Again, listen to what he says to explain it. Which of you desiring to build a tower? This is the very next verse. Doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. This is the whole point. You have to, you have to decide when you follow Jesus that it is worth losing everything in order to follow him. The implication is you're going to lose a lot, maybe everything, in order to follow Jesus. And I mean literally, like you're going to give up the career you thought you were going to have. I found that out. I gave up the career I thought I was going to have because he called me to something else. I'm not complaining about it. And there was no nobility in my obedience. I mean, I fought tooth and nail not to do what I was called to do. So there's no nobility in it whatsoever. But the reality is, I look back on it and go, oh, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, he changed everything I would have done with my life. It's completely different. And so his statement isn't, I have to choose to hate my father and mother. His statement is, when you begin following me, your father and mother may completely reject you. You have to accept that before it comes, or you're not really going to be willing to follow me where I'm going to lead you. Because I'm going to lead you where it may cost you everything. In fact, it may cost you your own life. And unless you've decided ahead of time that when someone's coming after you with a gun, unless when someone's coming after you with the nails for the cross, unless when they're coming after you in all of those cases, you can say to yourself, it's okay. I already gave up my life when I chose to follow him. If you can't do that, then in those moments, you're going to change your mind. Hey, not worth it. I'm not following him anymore. You're right. You're right. I was wrong. I was wrong. I'll do something else. I'll follow somebody else. I'll be a different way. That's what we would do. We panic and run from the thing that's built into committing ourselves to be followers of Christ. So that's why he says, if you don't first sit down and count the cost, then you go backwards and you don't complete the tower that you said you were going to begin to build. Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him and say, well, this man began to build and wasn't able to finish. And he's not talking about building towers. He's talking about being a follower of Christ. Being a follower of Christ means choosing to give up everything, not because everything, not because you go find your bank account and drain it. Some might. Maybe you have a calling to do that. Not because you have to do that. Not because you need to go get your car and drive it into a brick wall and say, well, there, I gave up my car. Now I can follow Jesus. But because when you chose to follow Christ, you chose the reality of obeying him, even if it does mean somebody takes your car, even if it does mean somebody takes your career, even if it does mean the circumstance you find yourself in forfeits everything else you thought you were going to have. So he goes on with another illustration. What king going out to encounter another king in war doesn't first sit down and deliberate whether with 10,000 he can meet the one who's coming against him with 20,000? 
by the way, he's saying that's what's happening here. I'm asking you to follow me and take your little 300 men, Gideon, and go into a war with a bunch of thousands and have to rely on me. And if you're not willing to die, you're not willing to do that. So are you really willing to follow me or not? Otherwise, you'd compromise now. Well, let's negotiate about this. I mean, I'll go to church. I'll hear all the moral stuff they say. I'll decide what I want to do and don't want to do. We'll negotiate some kind of deal. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it means to follow me. Following me means choosing to give up everything before it has cost you anything. Because once you choose to follow me, you have to be willing to follow me even when I lead you where you would never have chosen to go. So that's why he says in verse 33 of Luke 14 to conclude the passage, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce, say goodbye to, give up all that he has, cannot be my disciple. And that's the point for the whole thing. Cannot be my disciple. Being my disciple entails having already gone there in your mind, in your heart, in your will. You've already gone there. I've given all that up. Hey, nice car you have. You could literally say, as a Christian, you could literally, and mean this, you could literally say, not mine anymore. I already gave it up. But I'm, I'm glad I get to drive it. I'm glad I get to drive it, but it's here for anything Jesus wants to do with it because I'm following him now. That's what we have to be doing with everything in our lives if we're a follower of Christ. Now, here's the, so here's the thing I want to associate with that and the reason I'm bringing it up today in this discussion. Because I think the way we make our decisions often becomes less about the values that we hold, and I mean even the core values that we hold, and more about the practical, pragmatic, utilitarian conclusion that we think we need to avoid or obtain based on whatever other set of values we're holding or some synthesis of those values. And the challenge is always this. The challenge is always being willing to do right even when your own interest gets involved in it and sometimes is contradicted in it. And the challenge of that is that your own interest is always involved in the decisions you're making. I mean, because you're always present. So you know what it's going to mean for this to happen. It's why Jesus himself is saying in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, because his own interest is also present. He's not just checked out and going to experience this thing independently of his actual encounters with reality. He's going to live it, and he knows that. And the context, The contradiction, the conflict there is inevitable in all of us. So I learned a bajillion years ago, because that's how old I am now, a strategy for trying to get to the moral decision. Again, I'm not more noble than anybody else. It's not like I always make the right decision. I'm not pretending any of that. There's no moral superiority in me. And if you know me, you know that's true to begin with. But I have learned a strategy for when I want to make the right choice. I need to make the right choice. And I've got a decision that I've got to come to. And my my self-interest is present. It's going to be present no matter what. And the problem is my self-interest, I mean, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. 
Sometimes it's leaning toward the morally right thing. Sometimes it's leaning toward the morally wrong thing. And sometimes those two things are not distinguishable by some rule of morality that I know, but simply by a desire to do what I believe God wants me to do. And I can't tell the difference between the two. And in those moments, self-interest becomes this obscuring fog that makes it almost impossible to know what to do. So I had to develop early on uh, a strategy for trying to get to the moral decision, the one that would actually be following what's right instead of what's wrong in a given circumstance. And, and there's no guarantee on any of this, but I did find a strategy that worked for me. And I think it's basically what Jesus is teaching in Luke 14, or it is a practical manifestation of some of the things that Jesus is talking about that I just read to you in Luke 14. So it's in this strategy, what I'm talking about is this, and it's simple, accepting the worst outcome from the start. So, I mean, that's sort of built into what I was just reading you, right? So you're like, well, that's, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. But in practical terms, I, I don't find a lot of people actually doing this. Sitting down and saying, okay, I've got a decision I need to make. So, well, I, you know, I, I, sometimes we write positives and negatives down. I don't do that very often, but you think through it, even if you don't write it down. And you, so you think through all the positives and negatives, and you say, well, does the cost outweigh the benefits and blah, blah, blah. That's fine, but unless you've written down those negatives and said, and am I willing to live with those? Then your cost-benefit analysis is always going to lead just to a utilitarian conclusion. Well, what's going to bring the best result here? What's going to be the most positive thing here? And that's not good enough for us to say we're making a moral decision. So when you've written all those negative things down, if you really want to come to the moral value of a decision, you've got to be willing to say, you know what, I, I think I'm, I am willing, I'm going to think through this. I am willing to accept the worst outcome for me in making this decision. Whether that outcome means I'm rejected by family, you know, in terms of the passage we were reading above, or I have to go to a, an act of, you know, the crucifixion. People are going to crucify me. Or if it means literally I've got to finish this no matter the cost. So I'm going to finish this program. I'm going to finish this whatever, no matter the cost. Or if it means I'm willing to face defeat, I'm willing to be humiliated, but I'm going to do the right thing in this circumstance. Whatever that worst outcome is, you, you choose to accept it. And, and it is, to be more specific, it is the worst, and I'm saying, this, uh, believe, I'm saying this from long experience with people who've used this excuse for doing things that are morally, uh, incomprehensibly unacceptable. The, and that worst outcome that I'm talking about, you being willing to accept, well, look, I'm going to do the right thing, and I, I know the cost is going to be great, but I'm willing to do it. I'm talking about the worst outcome to you not someone else. The conflict of interest in these values is between the value you hold and the outcome you fear or desire. That's in you. There's no moral rectitude in being willing to sacrifice someone else's life or value or home or dreams in order to follow your convictions. I know a lot of people had to die, but it was just the right thing to do. No. It wasn't. If it costs you your life, sometimes that's still the right thing to do. I had to tell the truth. I had to go. I had to make this commitment. I had to pursue this 
this uh, obligation. And yeah, it's dangerous and it's risky for me. But that's worth it because this is the right thing to do. The way real atrocities happen is when we say, well, I'm willing to, to compromise the protection of all of those people over there because I think this is the right thing to do. So this has to be about you. When we say it's about other people, you know, it's going to cost a lot of people something, but, but we're just going to have to make ourselves suppress our empathy and, and just force ourselves through it. That's how real atrocities beyond what we would even allow to be fed our imaginations in movies or video games, that's how those real atrocities have been justified in actual life. So hear me clearly, when I say accepting the worst outcome, I mean for me, for you personally, and then still choosing to do the right thing. So I'll give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about, and then I'll be done. And hopefully it will make sense Uh, In the second example that I give, why that interview with Rachel Den Hollander and Tiffany Thigpen I thought was so important for us. So let me first give the example of conversations about race, because I run into this all the time, sort of a, a brick wall in conversations about race. And we've talked about layers of racism and what the word even means, and I'm not even gonna have a long discussion about it here. It's a fairly simple conversation here to make the point. There is, you know, when when you're talking about racism and uh, people are, you're talking, like if I'm talking with somebody who's telling a racist joke and they trust me and I have a, a decent relationship with them, then obviously, you know, the first step in eliminating racism is identifying the kind of racism that uh, is based on personal animosity. You know, I don't like that kind of people. That's, you, that, that's just racism straight up, right? That's the simplest and most obvious form. And we have to deal with that. In, the, in those conversations, it's not that difficult. I mean, unless I'm dealing with somebody who's really off the deep end, you know, if somebody can recognize, oh, man, I, I am. I'm making fun of people just because they're from a different culture. Their skin's a different color. They speak with a different accent. And, wow, I, 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 I shouldn't be doing that. That's not complicated. I get through that, those conversations just fine. People are willing to say, you know, I, I do. I care about other people. I realize I'm not supposed to think of myself as better than other people, and so I want to fix that. I don't run into a lot of barriers there. There, are, I'm not saying that, that that racism doesn't exist anymore. It absolutely does, but I am saying when you confront people about it now, it's not as difficult to talk about. People accept that that needs to be dealt with. Then there are, and this is a little trickier, I, I, I get some pushback on this, not a tremendous amount, though. There are implicit biases and prejudices Uh, And recognizing those and talking about them can be a challenge, and it can require some nuance and some patience. Uh, Things like stereotyping, you know, even when it's positive. Why, he's such an articulate young man. And not even recognizing the sort of, and I'll, I'll use a word some other people would find offensive, kind of a microaggression that's happening there. Wow. I can't believe somebody from that race learned to speak clearly. You didn't say that, but that's the idea. And I I hear that expression frequently, and it's very uncomfortable. And talking to people about it can be uncomfortable, but generally people I'm around will say, oh, you know, I didn't didn't even think about that. I didn't realize that's what I was doing. And it, it is something that's correctable, right? 
And if you think about it, in both of those cases, what's the cost of coming to an acknowledgement of what happened? A little embarrassment, some shame, an adjustment of what jokes we're willing to tell or not tell, and a little caution when we used to just be able to speak freely. Now we have to exercise a little caution and actually think about the impact of our words on other people before we say them. (gasps) Heaven forbid we should have to do that. Those things are doable, and people are willing to do them. My, my experience encountering a lot of people that have to deal, I mean, I had to deal with it with myself, all, both of those. I had to deal with with myself, and I still have to confront on a regular basis, especially at the second layer. Wow, I didn't even realize I was doing that. But, you know, there's just not a high cost. But then, <laughs> when, you talk, when I start talking about systemic barriers, to realizing bilateral social equality. I'm not going to go into long discussions about it, but I mean recognizing not just, you know, that saying this, the majority welcoming a minority into their world is not the same as realizing that we live in each other's worlds and a genuine respect for each other's cultures. Completely, those are two different things. And as long as those two things are kept separate, then those systemic barriers are still going to be there. Now, that's what I mean by the discussion. I'm not trying to make the argument today because I know there's an automatic pushback on those kinds of statements from a lot of people. Although if you're still listening to me, you're probably not one of the ones who pushes back. So I really appreciate that, that you're willing to listen to this. That one becomes more troubling. You know why? I mean, in my understanding of it, my best grasp of what on earth is going on, because it's almost dumbfounding. It's like, well, when I, when I talked about racism as animosity for certain people groups, it was no problem. And when I talked about racism as implicit biases and little stereotypes and stuff like that, it, it was no big deal. I mean, it was just, you know, hey, speak with boldness and I appreciate your conviction and then when I talk about systemic barriers, suddenly I'm a Marxist. I, you know, something he can't be trusted anymore. He must not believe the gospel anymore and things like that. And I'm not saying everybody said that, but there are some chicken littles out there. It's like, what? And I just look back and go, what happened? Why do people think this is so different? And it's the cost. It's the cost. And I hear it literally stated about something one of the one of the ways that systemic barriers to economic justice in terms of race and things like that could be addressed, which is reparations. I mean, just saying the word, it's like, oh, stepping in a minefield, you, you, you don't know when it's going to blow up on you. And the response is simple. I mean, this is the response you get right off the bat. It's, and by the way, it's a pragmatic response, pragmatic rejection of the idea of reparations. You know what I'm talking about for slavery, for all the people that were taken by force from their land, brought to America, and on whose backs this economy was built up for 150 to 200 years and still for 150 years after that in the Jim Crow South and so on. How on earth? So, Reparations, the idea, well, we should give some kind of economic settlement, some recognition that a part of this economy belongs to you because your ancestors were the ones who built it for us and we didn't give them their due credit when they were doing it. So we're going to make it up today. You know the, the, the response we get to that? Well, how on earth would we do that? I mean, that's so much money, it would destroy our entire economy. That's a pragmatic rejection. Reparations isn't the solution because... We couldn't do it practically. 
We couldn't bring it to pass without destroying our entire society. I mean, what are we going to do? I've heard other people say, what are we going to do? Give all the Native Americans the land back to them that we took from them by force? (laughs) Those are purely pragmatic reactions. The cost is too great. Therefore, we should not consider that action as viable. And therefore, it can't be the right thing to do. That is... That's it. And look, the pragmatic response is not unreasonable. I I mean, how much money would it take? Let's say you just wanted to give some minimal compensation to all the survivors, all the descendants from those on whose backs the economy was built. Say you wanted to give them $100,000 each. You end up with 42 million people you're giving $100,000 each. You're talking about $4.2 trillion. Why? That's a little more than we even spent on COVID in that one spending bill, by the way. It's it's not completely unrealistic, but still, I can understand why people would say $4.2 trillion. That's ridiculous. It would destroy the economy. But none of that, none of that has a bearing on whether reparations would be the right thing to do. Not if you believe in moral realism. Not if you believe there is a right and a wrong. And first we decide whether something is right or wrong. Then we figure out how on earth we're going to do that right thing. Sometimes doing the right thing is practically impossible, and yet you still commit to it. That's why you have to be willing to accept whatever the cost is before you make your decision about what you're going to do, because your decision about what you're going to do should simply be based on what's right, and what's right may cost you everything. This is the point of this issue about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And this is what I wanted to talk about. I mean, you know, if if you listen to the, if you did not listen to the interview, the context for this part of the discussion, you should really hear. And I would strongly encourage you to hear it in the words of Rachel Den Hollander and Tiffany Thigpen in that interview. So you can go and listen to that. But for those of you who are, processing through this and going, well, let me just finish this episode and I'll go listen to the interview. The basic idea is is that in in Southern Baptist life, there was a revelation through the Houston Chronicle, a bunch of newspaper articles, and then people finally coming forward in something of a Me Too movement in the religious world and saying, yeah, I was abused when I was a girl in the youth department at this school and I was abused and, you know, whatever. In all, at this church, I mean, in, in all of those contexts, I mean, there's been a profound realization of the level of sexual abuse that was experienced in Southern Baptist entities and churches, seminaries and colleges and churches and, you know, every, at every level uh, throughout Southern Baptist life. And the response to that for years, and this is part of the findings of what happened when we started doing investigations and a little research, part of the discouraging part of that is that the administrators of these entities and of the convention itself were suppressing the stories of the victims and looking for ways simply to avoid liability. And so there are some recent things that transpired that you'll have to listen to the interview to catch up on because I don't want to take time to cover them right now. But with with or without those recent things, we realize what's going on, that admitting fault in any setting where a claimant might be able to apply for relief, that creates a liability. 
in recognizing a practically limitless list of sexual abuse accounts may have been fostered by the structures and systems in place because of Southern Baptist polity, that does create the possibility that the current structure of Southern Baptist life ends up needing to be dismantled. I'm not saying it does or doesn't need to be dismantled. I'm saying it's a possibility. And if people at the top of Southern Baptist life, and I mean in individual churches all the way up to the convention or the executive committee or the president of seminary, end up saying, you know what, we're just going to admit it. We were, we were at fault as an entity, an institution. Now, I'm not saying these people personally. That's not what it's about. It's the systems that created this. If that's the case, then admitting fault means we're acknowledging that the pursuit of justice on issues like this might, if one of the systems that created or perpetuated this problem is the way Southern Baptist life is organized, it might mean having to disorganize that. It might mean uh, ending the current structure of Southern Baptist life. Those in leadership end up asking those basic questions. Well, what would happen to our mission? What would happen to all those people out there witnessing on the mission field? What about our employees? And these are important questions. What about the faithful gifts of donors over the last 100 and 200 years to build up these entities and so on? And what happens in leadership is that it becomes inconceivable to put all of that at risk just to do what? Now, I'll put it in the, in, in the terms of the thing that gets neglected. Just to admit some level of fault or complicity in cases of sexual abuse. Some level of fault or complicity. Not even blaming, not the act, not the offense, but creating the structure that perpetuates or allows or somehow protects those who are committing the offenses. Even if, even if somewhat passively admitting some level of fault or complicity in cases of sexual abuse. You really think it's worth it? to do that and give up this entire mission, lose all of these employees, lose their jobs for, you know, and so on. Here's, the, here's, the, here's where the rubber meets the road. You end up asking all those questions. Is it worth giving all of those things up really to answer this question? Admitting that, so acknowledging this, that admitting that fault, we were at fault, we should have protected you, and we didn't is clearly the right thing to do. That is the right thing to do. And if we are followers of Christ, then we cannot say, but the cost is too great. We chose to follow someone who said, the cost is never too great. You be willing to give up anything to do what's right in following Christ. So the original question that I asked at the start of the episode today was simply, why do we sometimes act in ways that are contradictory to our own values? And the answer is because the cost of following what we value sometimes seems too great to pay. Then the only way to avoid obscuring our own values, the things we actually do care about, to avoid the self-annihilating consequence of turning against those things that we value most, the only way to avoid that is to accept the cost of holding those values the same day we choose to take them up. In Christ, it means choosing rejection or the cross before you experience it.
But as soon as you begin to follow him, in terms of justness, you know, religiously, that would be righteousness. Philosophically, it would be morality. In terms of justness, it means being able to choose what is right, regardless of its cost to you. May we choose what is right. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.